Hello and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy, brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at Ends Report. And that now includes me, your new host, James Ajapong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be talking about the most vital of all things, the air we breathe. We'll be discussing the government's latest breached and tweaked air quality targets, as well as a bit of good news on DEFRA's farming scheme, ELMS. For our deep dive section, we'll be reviewing the rise in climate and environmental cases being brought into the courts. And finally, with news from across the channel, we'll hear about a new blanket ban on the prevalent but toxic group of chemicals known as PFAS. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. To help us navigate the quagmire of environmental policy this week, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's own news and features editors, Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. First up, it's a sad reality check that dirty air in the UK is on the rise. So Pippa, can you give us a breakdown of the news and the numbers? Yeah, so there was a few big bits of news um, relating to air quality published last week. Um, But first, I think it's good to talk about DEFRA's new annual air pollution statistics, which revealed that annual emissions of particulate matter, so that's PM2.5 and PM10, increased by 8 and 6% respectively between 2020 and 2021. And PM2.5, that's anything, any object that's less than size of 2.5 micrometres and there's a thousand micrometres to a millimetre. So we're talking about the really small stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. really small. And it's because of its size is why it's so dangerous to human health and why it's something we need to get a grip on. And the numbers that have come out this week aren't good, are they? No. So according to the statistics, most of the um, reason for this increase in particulate matter pollution is coming from households burning wood, with emissions from this source increasing by 124% between 2011 and 2021. So a pretty huge jump, with particulate matter from wood burning now representing 21% of total PM2.5 emissions. Um, the burning of fuels on industrial sites is like either to generate energy or to drive machinery, for example, is also a major source, um, accounting for 26% of PM2.5 and 16% of PM10. Um, and interestingly, emissions from this source increased also in 2021, with DEFRA saying this is largely due to the increasing combustion of biofuels, which have increased by 379% between 2010 and 2021. So there's a lot of numbers you've just thrown at us. <laughs> One step back, why should we care about a rise in PM2.5 pollution? So as you mentioned, PM2.5 is the ti- it's tiny kind of bits of particles in the air. Um, and inhalation of these particles is really, really bad for us. Um, I just was looking at it before before the podcast and DEFRA says that there's no safe safe limit to this. Um, And the biggest impact on public health is kind of with long term exposure, which, according to DEFRA, increases the age specific mortality risk, particularly from cardiovascular causes. So kind of from a human health perspective, inhalation of these small particles is really dangerous. Um, So so, yeah, it's going to exacerbate my asthma. Mm -hmm. It's going to impact the my blood exchange in my lungs. It's going to shred through my body, essentially, because it's just so small. Yeah. Lovely. (laughs) 
You touched on it. You mentioned the rise in um, domestic fire burning. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That that that's a, a large contributor to this rise. So so that's that's the wood. That's my wood burner in my house. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And and so what? They're becoming more popular, and as a result, more wood burners, more PM two point five. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's been you know a really big trend in people in kind of middle class households having wood burners not generally for their main source of heating but more kind of for aesthetic reasons and i think with cost of living crisis and things like that people have installed wood burners kind of as a way to be using less gas cuz perhaps they can just use wood that they've chopped down in their garden which is a big problem because that could be wet wood which is more polluting so it's it's a lot to do with that, but I think also as we've made progress in other areas in terms of reducing pollution from traffic, if we as we have like the ultra low emission zone or less diesel vehicles, that that progress is kind of being dwarfed by um, an increase in pollution from this this area. And I read I read in your your piece that whilst that PM two point five and PM ten pollution has increased respectively between 2020 and 2021, the latest available data, overall pictures better? The <laughs> things are going down? Yeah. So between 2005 and 2021, PM25 um, fell by 28%. So that obviously is great news. But I think what's interesting is that this data shows that the UK didn't meet its 30% emission reduction target required for between 2020 and 2029 as set out in the National Emission Ceilings Regulations. So even though this is good progress, it's it's not enough and it's not abiding by like the legal reduction commitments. Right, so we've got to hit these targets by law mm-hmm. and we're not. Yeah. Where have we heard this before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was quite interesting, well, on sticking with air, you wrote a story on DEFRA tweaking its accounting of its data. Mm-hmm. Is that is that right? Yeah, so part of these emission reduction targets that I just mentioned that are set out in the National Emission Ceiling Regulations, DEFRA has to publish a National Air Pollution Control Programme. So DEFRA recently published this programme after it was out for consultation. And under the emission ceiling regulations for ammonia pollution, the UK has an emission reduction commitment of 8%. And when the draft programme was put out for consultation, it concluded that with existing measures, the projected percentage reduction is likely to be just 3% by 20, by 2030 compared to 2005. So therefore not enough and that more action was needed to kind of reduce ammonia pollution. And very quickly, we're talking about ammonia now because it's one of the five air pollutants that DEFRA needs to hit under this national emissions ceilings regulations rolls off the tongue <laughs> of 2018, right? Yeah, and exactly. B- and others being PM2.5, sulfur oxides, non-methane volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides. Yeah, exactly. I thought these two things were separate, but I was reading that PM2.5 forms from when ammonia reacts with nitrous oxides and sulfur dioxides. Mm-hmm. So it's all interrelated. Yeah, exactly. And you're saying that DEFRA has decided to adjust how it's monitoring its ammonia emissions. Mm-hmm. Right. And the significance of that is that now if it makes that adjustment, it's on track to meet its requirements. Yeah, exactly. Without that adjustment, it's not. Exactly. So in the original document that they consulted on, they said 
under existing measures, um, ammonia is set to de- decline by 3%. And that's not enough to hit these targets. But when the final document was published last week, I think it was, the figure had changed with the projected emission reduction being 23%, despite the document saying that no further changes have been made to the package of measures to reduce ammonia. That was eight, was that 8%? Eight, uh, 23%. And, uh, but without... So it was... so The, the numbers are too much from yeah. the start. It's too, too hit me again. <laughs> so... In the original draft program that they consulted on, they said that under kind of current measures to reduce ammonia emissions, um, it, the projected projected reduction was just three percent. Three percent. When it needs to be eight percent. Right. Under the legally binding commitments, and then when the final document was published, this number had changed to twenty three percent. But. Defra said no further changes have been made to the package of measures to reduce emissions. So it was kind of a bit confusing. So like, you know, how can it have gone from 3% to 23% with no further promises to reduce these emissions? And that was where this adjustment comes in that you're talking about, which has now removed non-manure digestate as a form of ammonia pollution in the UK's national emissions total. Okay, so they found 20 percentage points Mm -hmm. by tweaking this data. Yeah. And 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 to be clear, then when we're talking about um, digestate, this is the leftover stuff from our AD plants. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Are they allowed to do that? Yeah. So they are legally allowed to do that because they submitted this kind of adjustment to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, who accepted it. So yeah, legally they are allowed to. But I spoke to um, environmental lawyers who told me, you know, this is really problematic because it just undermines the broad purpose of the regulations, and it kind of means that DEFRA is going to look great on paper, saying, you know, we're going above and beyond our emission reductions, but that this is totally artificial. That air pollution, ammonia pollution, won't have declined because you're just not including a whole massive section of the pollution. So it's legal. But they've moved the goalposts. Mm-hmm. Is it ethical? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the more interesting question, or I don't know, maybe not more interesting, but more significant, I guess. But I think what is interesting is that um, when I did speak to lawyers, they said, although this adjustment won't impact the national um, the emissions reduction commitment, it may impact DEFRA's ability to reach its air pollution targets under the Environment Act, because as you mentioned, ammonia and particulate matter are connected. And we have um, a target to reduce particulate matter. And if we're not reducing ammonia, then this could impact targets elsewhere. So it's I think it's one to watch. And I think it's one that the lawyers will be watching closely. But, you know, we have until 2030 and 2040 for these kind of deadlines for the target. So it's, mm. yeah, we'll see. Okay. I need some good news. Tess, have you got any good news for us this week? I don't want to... I don't want to say anything too confidently, but yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> I have got some good news because it looks like the uptake of DEFRA's sustainable farming incentive, which is the most basic tier of uh, its its big farming reforms, which are called environmental land management schemes. It looks like the uptake is higher than previously thought, uh, according to some figures that were obtained by ENS. Um, and this is interesting because, you know, 
in January this year, the Guardian were reporting some other leaked figures, uh, which suggested that just 224 farmers in England uh, were currently being paid under this basic scheme called SFI. But the figures we've seen suggest actually it's much, you know, much higher. It's about 1,400 applicants currently being paid under the scheme as of January 2023. Um, and that there's been about 2,000 applications from farmers and land managers. So, and, and that, you know, this is an important thing because these um, these farming reforms underlie so much uh, of of this country's environmental ambitions. We've just been talking always about air and about ammonia and digestate. And a big source of ammonia is uh, farm animals and the stuff they produce. Um, so it's all kind of interlinked and, you know, there's a big target to um, halt the decline of species by 2030. That won't happen unless farmers are on board. So this is good news, mostly. And you mentioned some of the numbers there. It sounds like the money's sloshing around. I read uh, your article that £10.7 million has been mm. paid out so far under the mm-hmm. SFI this year. Yep, £10.7 million was, Last year. was paid out in the 2022 calendar year. 2022 calendar year. Yeah. And I mean, considering the government has committed to maintain the £2.4 billion farming budget, at its current level for the, the whole of the whole of the current parliament. That actually doesn't sound like much when you first hear it. Um, and across all elms, so all its schemes, DEFRA spent 2.3 billion in, in the last financial year. So there's actually a bit of an underspend. Um, though DEFRA says this is this is due to COVID-19 and they're gonna make the, the funding uh, available for other schemes. But I think what's what's actually more significant is that until last month um, there wasn't much that farmers could sign up to. There was about three things. The way the scheme works is, is different payment streams. Like if you do X to your soil, we'll give you this much per hectare. Um, and there wasn't really much, there weren't many. They've just announced a new slew of different things farmers can do. Um, so I think the actual figures to watch are going to be, you know, what what happens this year and what, what will the figures be? What will they be in October after the kind of farmers and land managers have had time to, have a look and see what works for them because um that that's what's going to make the real real difference but um SFI I mean when I, I spoke to a few kind of green groups about this when when we uh, got the figures and yeah, it's been been a bit of a mixed response so Alice Groom who's the RSPB interim head of sustainable land policy said that it's a little bit too early like I've just said to determine how popular it is but you know despite despite the limited offer these are encouraging figures uh, but others the Wildlife and Countryside Link suggested that, you know, it's a sign that DEFRA's maybe clearing some of its policy logjam, which we've spoken about a lot on the Eco Chamber, um, but, you know, did point out that SFI amounts to 2,000 offers um, amounts to just under 2% of the estimated 107,000 commercial farm holdings in England. So there's a long way to go to make this a widespread sort of thing that people are engaged with. So, so you're saying that of the... That's basically saying that great, we've got you know one thousand plus farmers in, uh, but we've still got hundred thousand plus farm holdings to go. Yeah, and it, and even of those farm holdings, SFI doesn't apply to the whole you know bit of it. It's probably could just be a section of land. So, you know, this is like I said, it's the most basic tier. It's meant to be the most accessible for the most farmers, uh, including tenant farmers. Um, there are other schemes within Elms which look at much bigger landscape scale change, but this is the one that most farmers are meant to be able to sign up to. It has had some criticism for being maybe a bit too easy, basically, just paying 
paying farmers good money for old rope is the phrase that gets thrown around because, you know, paying people to do what should just be considered as good farming practice. But we're in such a state in the countryside where really the, the, the land's in a terrible, a terrible kind of situation. Um, so I, I guess there's a, there's a bit of a tension there with, well, if you need to put the money up to make people do it, then that's what you have to do. Although, of course, enforcement would um, maybe go some way as well. All right. Well, thank you, Tess. Thank you, Piffa. Um, uh, if you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories we've been discussing today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. So now on to our deep dive section. I'm here to talk environmental litigation with Tess. So Tess, three cases have caught your eye. Why? Mm, because I'm a nerd. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, the background to why this is interesting, I think, is because we've been, you know, we see NGOs taking government to court and we've seen, you know, corporations to court. We see that quite a lot of the years. And so that in itself isn't what I find interesting about the ones I'm about to describe. Um, it's because they're setting quite interesting precedents. So in the last week, we've seen Client Earth launch you know, kind of legal action against Shell's board of directors. We've seen the government's combined sewage overflow plan granted uh, a judicial review, uh, which some green groups have brought. And we've seen another client earth case uh, where the NGO is is taking legal action against the Financial Conduct Authority uh, for approving the listing of an, uh, an oil and gas firm on the London Stock Exchange. So these are all massive. I'm not going to bore you with all the details about them necessarily. But like I was saying, I think they're interesting because... Uh, if if these are successful, even just some of them, and it isn't if at this stage, they're all very early early stages. Um, they will set really significant precedents. Client Earth, I think the one the case they've got against Shell was particularly interesting. Um, and they this they as an NGO, like they're going increasingly after these strategic cases, which have the potential for impact bigger than just the case itself. Um, so that's why I think it's interesting. And this move towards you know setting precedents. Um, it comes in the backdrop of of an increase in climate litigation across the world. Um, according to the Grantham Institute, I've got some figures here, the, the cumulative number of climate change related legal cases across the world has more than doubled since 2015, with the total number standing at 2000. And of these, around one quarter were filed between 2020 and 2022. So it's all quite recent. And I think, it, I think it's going it to really start to shape the way the kind of environmental campaign groups start to start to do things. So on that Shell case then, you've they're taking action against the 11 directors mm-hmm. allegedly for breaking their duties under the Companies Act. Yeah. 2006. Mm-hmm. Yes. And why do they think they failed? Well they they think they failed they failed in respect towards their own shareholders. So Client Earth owns shares in the fossil fuel giant Shell, which might sound strange, um, but you know it's obviously they've done this for a strategic purpose, um, and it's bringing the legal action in that capacity. It's uh, called a derivative claim, right? <laughs> which is brought by a shareholder on behalf of the company in relation to a breach of legal duty by a director. Um, and so you can imagine if this goes anywhere, then corporates across the world will be watching this, or certainly in the UK, where because it's being brought under UK law, because it's not just that they're taking it against Shell, they're taking it against the individuals on the board. Mm. Um, and if you're sitting there on a board and you think, crap, <laughs> like mm. this could become personal quite quickly if Shell, if if Client Earth are successful, and you know they haven't been yet, but. That's why I think it's it's interesting for Shell to be taken into court. And there was something I am going to throw you a curveball here. There was a case last year brought against um, 
uh, a waste director, only a much smaller firm, not the corporate suits, not the power tie, the power steering, the power everything, mm. chap called Gordon Anderson. Mm. And what was interesting from our conversations was, you know, it's not just the corporate heads that need to worry about environmental litigation anymore. You can be anyone mm. and you're responsible for the consequences of and the environmental impact of your business, right? Yeah. Could, could you just tell us a little bit about that case? Yeah. I mean, so... It's not it's not new for litigation to be brought against a company for environmental offences. You've got the EA, that's kind of their job. But like you say, um, the case of Gordon Anderson was a case in the Court of Appeal last year in which the director, which was Mr. Anderson, um, he was a director of a waste company. He tried to appeal a sentence which had been handed down. Um, and his kind of central complaint was that he was being treated uh, for sentencing purposes, as if he was the company, not simply its director, which in law is, you know, a distinction that gets made. Um, so yeah. you're not li- as liable. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's to protect shareholders. It's that you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it, that's the idea behind it. And I won't, I won't go into all the details, like I said, because it's very technical. But in short, the court wasn't having any of it, and um, the 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 suspend the the sentence was a suspended prison sentence. It was upheld. So if anyone is interested, there's an interesting. Um, legal comment on the ENDS report site by uh, the lawyer Simon Tilling, which goes into more depth on this. Uh, And if you're a nerd and like that sort of thing. Um, But the takeaway from that case is that if you're a director or a senior manager and you you don't ensure compliance with environmental law within within the business you manage, you you are at risk of being personally punished. Um, And uh, yeah, so this is a kind of much smaller case of what potentially could be seen with Shell. What about the um, the case against the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority? What's so significant about that for you? Yeah, so with this case, it's um, so in November, it's a energy, which they said is an oil and gas operator in the North Sea. It com- completed a um, initial public offering on the London Stock Exchange, and part of getting on the London Stock Exchange involves the firm producing something called a prospectus, which sets out the details of its operations and any risks the firm might face. This has to be approved by the Financial Conduct Authority. And Client Earth, again, is arguing that the firm didn't go far enough in describing the climate-related risks faced by it and that the FCA, like I said, you have to sign this off, therefore unlawfully approved it. That's the, that's their claim. Um, and Client Earth, um, in a statement they, they, they put out, its lawyers argue that it does not appear to explain how these risks affect its business specifically or how significant these risks are for the company. Um, and it's yeah, kind of on a different tangent, but the it's kind of similar to the Shell case in that they're approaching the legal action from kind of the point of view of you know it's a business issue, like you're not protecting the business and the shareholders, rather than you know you're not you know, upholding climate legislation or something like that. Um, so if successful, this too surely will have ramifications for all companies seeking to be listed on the London Stock Exchange. So again, a very potential potentially significant case, and the regulators too. Yeah, and the regulators as well. The regulators will need to look if if this if this is successful. You know, not saying it will be. You know, we need to go through the courts. But um, if it were to be, regulators would be sitting up more straight and looking at the details. And as we've talked about businesses, we've talked about individuals, we've talked about regulators. Mm-hmm. We're now going to talk about the government being challenged in the courts. And this is over its CSO plan. Mm. Um, I'm sure it's got a wonderful fancy name. Um, if you can, you tell us a little bit more about that. Um, yes, the Storm Overflow action. action Plan. Um, not climate issues this time, but that's that plan. Um, it's about how water companies need to improve their storm overflows 
stop them discharging into kind of designated bathing areas and that sort of thing. Um, and lawyers for a selection of green groups led by the Marine Conservation Society, they're arguing based on a very old common law doctrine around since 1299, um, this doctrine says that the state must hold vital natural resources in trust for the benefit of both current and future generations. Um, I, lo- I love this doctrine. I, I was reading about this. It, the, so this was around when King Edward I was residing over a case with a, a Juliana, Juliana the washerwoman who successfully challenged her neighbour, the mayor, who was trying <laughs> to cut off her access to her water supply. Uh, and she won. There we go. And I thought that was just what an amazing story. So I understand the Good Law Project are sort of pushing this through legally. Mm. So they're going to try and argue from a case brought in 1299 with Juliana to 2023. <laughs> mm. I, I just think that's wonderful. The public trust doctrine. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great story just, just for that, what you just said. Um, but yeah, like Joe Moore, is director of the Good Law Project, he and they're supporting the case, um, he said that this could be the most most consequential environmental law case in recent history. That's a quote. Um, and he, he noted that the decision by the High Court to proceed to a judicial review, which is where they've got to in, in their, their case, means that it agrees that the, the common law principle that we've just been discussing is arguable and that the natural environment must be protected for future generations. Just imagine the precedent that will set you know that that this is this is this is something, and policymakers will have to know, like think about this when they're writing new policy and new law. It's important. So Shell, the FCA, and the government—they must be thinking that they're they're okay. These alleged uh, offences aren't aren't uh, legitimate. Is that right? Well, Shell reject everything that Client Earth is saying. Uh, Shell spokesperson said, "We do not we do not accept Client Earth's allegations and that." Uh, our directors have complied with their legal duties and have at all times acted in the best interests of the company. And they're also keen to point out that um, uh, the, the the group, so Client Health have got a group of other shareholders kind of supporting their case. And um, Shell were keen to point out that that group makes up just 0.2% of total shareholders. So that, that was that was something that they, they wanted to say. And so what did the FCA say in their response? Well, the FCA didn't respond uh, to a request for comment, uh, nor did Itica Energy. So I, I can't tell you, but yeah, they, they, they were they were contacted. Um, and the government on the CSO challenge, uh, a DEFRA group's postperson said that we've put the strictest targets ever on water companies to clean up our water, plus requirements to deliver the largest infrastructure program in their history to tackle sewage spills and added that we will continue to look at ways to go further and faster and we're determined to hold water companies to account for poor performance. Thank you. And and the last thing then, you, we touched on it, The where this is going, you've mentioned of the 2,000 odd cases brought to court globally, you know, a quarter of these mm. um, were between 2020 and 2022, and this is the climate change related legal cases. You had a chat with Client Earth, the CEO, last year. Yeah. Just very briefly, what, where, where does she see it all going? Laura Clark, she's kind of recently taken the helm at Client Earth. She was very big on this idea of um, taking, looking at strategic cases um, and working. She kind of talked about, you need to go to the heart of power. And where's the heart of power? Uh, the markets, she said to me, um, which makes sense when you see the kind of cases they're taking with Shell and the FCA, it's all trying to go to very the, the heart of the system, if you like. 
Um, so I think, you know, they're doing, Client Earth are doing that and they're major players in this kind of field, but other NGOs are really developing some legal muscle. Um, you know, we saw Friends of the Earth take the, the government to court last year for the net zero strategy. Um, and you know, Greenpeace are often involved in these sorts of things as well. So I think, you know, they're only going to get more sophisticated and more strategic. Uh, so I think that's, that's the direction of travel really. So yeah, everyone better look out. Yeah. <laughs> Keep an eye on it. Thank mm. you very much, Tess. This month, new research documenting the growing concerns of PFAS leaking into the Arctic Circle were published, this relation to snowmelt. And it really showed how this group of forever chemicals is truly pervasive in its nature. Across the channel, they're trying to do something about it, I think. Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon are here with our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section to help me get to the bottom of the latest Brussels news. So, so for a start, I'm hoping they are going to help me pronounce the full PFAS acronym. Alice, what is it? Okay, so it is per or polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Rolls off the tongue. It does. And Simon, it sounds nice. Is it? I mean, it depends who you ask. Uh, the, I think PFAS is commonly associated with non-stick frying pans. That's potentially where you would have heard of them. Uh, but they have an unbelievable number of uses. So waterproof textiles, uh, semiconductors, wind turbines, solar panels. Um, they're really in a whole bunch of any kind of paints and varnishes, like really a whole load of both industrial and consumer uses. I mean, they're extremely useful. This is a, this is why they're used so often is that they 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 are hydrophobic, so they resist water, they resist oils. Um, they, they've got um, very useful qualities for membranes of all kinds, um, including things like electrolyzers. So the problem with them is that they are. They never break down, or, 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 or a whole bunch of these PFASs simply don't degrade in the environment, uh, bioaccumulate, um, and then can lead to all kinds of both human health problems, but also environmental problems. So they're contaminating pristine Arctic environments, top of glaciers that we're seeing in them in the Antarctic. Um, that's an indication that they're basically ubiquitous in the environment, and it's prompted regulators in the in in the EU to. Um, propose a restriction. And by restriction, what do you mean? Well, yeah, that's the uh, that's uh, where What's the tea, Simon? That's, that's where things get complicated. So a couple of weeks ago, we had five European regulators led by Germany and the Netherlands um, put forward a proposal under the EU's REACH regulation, which is a big piece of EU chemicals regulation, for a group restriction on PFASs. And this would affect pretty much every PFAS in existence, and there's thousands of these things, yeah, at least 10,000. Yeah, we're talking upwards of 10,000. Yeah. And like I say, this ranges across a whole bunch of different uses. So this would be a range of industrial, but also consumer uses. The ban that was proposed a couple of weeks ago, which is still at the, very much at the consultation stage, we, we're nowhere near a full Yeah, the, uh, the ECHA is having a consultation. ECHA. Yeah, ECHA. All right, we're calling it ECHA. That's what everyone calls it. Uh, the That's European Chemicals uh, Agency is having a consultation starting on the 22nd of March for six months. Yeah. Um, and even after that consultation process, basically the, the restriction proposal goes to a bunch of, first it goes to two of the expert committees of the European Chemicals Agency. Yeah. And then it's up into the hands of the European Commission, which you remember is sort of the EU 
civil service yeah um, which proposes and they the will propose the ban yeah. Yeah. so we're basically talking late 2020s by the time any yeah. sort of ban comes into law and at that point most PFASs would be phased out according to this proposal within 18 months okay but but because this is the eu things get very complicated very quickly and the the the, the, the five authorities here have proposed a whole range of derogations exemptions as well uh, and exemptions so, yeah. so certain classes of PFAS as you're right are exempt um biocides pesticides uh medicines mm-hmm. um yeah. that would count as fluorinated are exempt because they're basically regulated under other eu rules so yeah. they're regulated like we don't want under the, to do with that. yeah okay good the plant protection products regulation the biocides regulation and i can't remember the short title for the medicines there's one a, but there is a dedicated there's medicines. a bunch yeah i think there's yeah. a couple because of veterinary yeah. products as well anyway yeah um one of the things is this would this would have a direct impact on the kind of products that you or i could buy because within this mm. um within this restriction are the most co- commonly purchased sort of consumer items would be fluoropolymers so these are like um uh famously teflon ptfe it's called yeah. Uh, which is the coatings they use for non-stick frying pans mm-hmm. used in treating textiles. So these are things that you and I come into probably daily contact with. Yeah, it's worth noting PTFE not particularly um, hazardous in and oh, of itself. So, so we shouldn't not, just you're bin. Very, very unlikely non-stick. to get a kind of exposure to um, uh, chemical nasties by using a non-stick frying pan, unless um, you leave it. On a on a hot stove. If you leave it empty on a hot stove and you can get the surface temperature right. up to above three hundred degrees Celsius, it's kind of hard uh, to do, but not impossible. Okay. Unusual. Um, then you could end up basically after above that temperature, PTFE can break down, and if you inhale those fumes, can make you ill. So that's not where our main exposure lies. No, exactly. So this is one of the things that the fluoropolymer industry particularly you'd expect particularly unhappy about this restriction proposal because they say, well. PTFE is inert. It's basically inert, like it's not posing a health risk to consumers. The regulators very clear in their proposal that exposure to PFASs needs to be restricted across the life cycle of yeah. PFASs. It's right? not the end use that's it's the, the issue. End use. It's the um it's the process of making it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's well, it's the process of making it and it's also what happens to products at the end of their life. Yeah. So um P- PTFE in your frying pans. Um, was historically um, made with a monomer called PFOA. Yeah. PFOA was subsequently banned under the Stockholm Convention because it's uh, very bad, <laughs> very persistent. And That's the technical term, very, very bad. bad. That's what they said about it, <laughs> the guys at the Stockholm Convention. Um, you may remember from the film Dark Waters, Rob Biller in, in, in the US sued DuPont Chemicals as it then was over PFOA contamination in Ohio, yeah. which had affecting um cattle livestock people in ohio and there's similar instances of pfoa contamination across the world where around but not just exclusively around sort of like production sites the the other issue sorry just to press on for a sec yeah is what happens to products at the end of their life um and if you live in the uk or live in northern europe there's a high chance of your black bin rubbish getting incinerated and if that's the case there's plenty of evidence from biomonitoring surveys around energy from waste plants that suggests higher concentrations of fluorinated chemicals um, in, say, the eggs of chickens that people have in in 
their gardens if they're near energy from waste plant or in the in the grasses or in the soils around um energy from waste plants so these are the kinds of uh things that the european regulators are super worried about and the reason why they're doing it as a class is because of that tendency to just replace a chemical with a very similar one yeah absolutely and then just yeah continuing the risks yeah absolutely so this thing of the notion of regrettable substitution um which is typically what's happened is when you ban a certain specific chemical uh a a company may unknowingly end up replacing that chemical with another one with similar or potentially even worse properties so with a group approach by basically having a very very broad definition of PFAS covering basically any and all comp- any and all sorts of compounds um uh that may share these very persistent qualities uh regulators are able to basically do their job more effectively and regulate more effectively yeah and just going back to what you said about um those substances being found in like chickens eggs or so on is it fair to say that we are all a bit more slippery or our blood is more slippery. Our, our blood is more poisoned, isn't it? That's yeah, but I'm it's getting. like, okay, but, you know, maybe considering that this, these are non-stick chemicals. I, th- I mean, you've sort of make an, in- are you make an interesting point insofar as I, I do think there's a tendency in the way that insofar as chemicals pollution gets discussed in the mainstream media, it's often presented as a lifestyle choice and a thing that you can avoid yeah. if you only buy the right products. and. Um, this is true of PFAS and it's true of a bunch of other chemicals is you, we can't consume our way out of this problem. You're not yep. going to, you're not going to substantially reduce your exposure by buying a alternative to a nonstick frying pan or by buying a PFAS free raincoat or whatever. So what you're saying is we can't escape. You, we can't escape. It's an environmental problem. You know, you can be, you can be Bill Gates or you could be Beyonce, but at the end of the day, this is something which is, um, this is something we're being exposed to through water, through air, through dust, through um, uh, a whole range of environmental factors that we simply can't control unless we were to live hermetically sealed in a little box, you know, somewhere with filters and all the rest of it. But yeah, but not even. Hence the need for the super rich can really avoid this problem. Yeah, hence the need for somewhat drastic action. Exactly. And the total ban. I mean, and the, the regulators, and I would, if you if you have got half an hour, I would strongly recommend reading the conclusion of the regulators' um, restriction proposal because they really put it in very, very... Stark terms. Stark terms. Um, <laughs> Do not read it if you're feeling blue. It will not help. So if you haven't had your fix of PFAS with Alice and Simon, uh, there is something you can do. You can sign up to our forthcoming webinar on the 27th of February. It's going to be focused entirely on these forever chemicals. To sign up, you have to go to www.ensreport.com forward slash TV. It's going to be an all-star cast. You've got Rob Biller on the on the lineup, the author, the lawyer, the attorney, and the PFAS legend, who was the inspiration for the uh, quoted Dark Waters film starring Mark Ruffalo. Uh, we've got Julie Schneider. Uh, from the Chem Trust, and we've got Crispin Hulsel, who is the Professor of Environmental Organic Chemistry at Lancaster Uni. It's going to be a great time. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone, Alice Fillon, who've taught me the dirty air we're breathing could be as stinky as the government's recording of ammonia pollution. 
Corporations like Shell are in the firing line, and European regulators may one day say goodbye to PFAS, bucking the trend that these forever chemicals will forever be with us. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, goodbye.